Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Well, good morning, church. How we doing? How we doing? Good. Glad that you're here. I want you to grab your Bibles with me. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you didn't receive a message card on your way in, you can raise your hand. And uh, one of the ushers in the back would love to serve you. Again, uh, if you're streaming live with us, you can uh, also find this um, there in front of you in Facebook and all of our social media outlets. But I want to uh, everyone to have a card in your hand because... I think for us to understand the power of the context of what God is going to speak to us, it helps. I think it just aids in the process to be able to see in front of us what God wants to speak. And so uh, I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. And um, I believe that God really wants to speak to us. It's been an amazing series. I've really enjoyed this series. Anybody enjoyed Unlikely Saints? Anybody besides just the preachers? So preachers, they, uh, they preach twice or they learn twice, I should say. They learn once. Uh, to learn, and then they learn again to teach, right? And in teaching, the whole principle is if you don't use it, you end up losing it. And nonetheless, uh, I've just been so blessed as I've studied, but also heard from Pastor Chad and the Word of God coming through his life. And uh, I just believe today is going to be a perfect cap off to what I think God has said this month. And so I want to hear, today we're going to hear a message that I'm entitling, Mephibosheth, the Unlikely Loved One. Now this is a story of a biblical character in the Old Testament named Mephibosheth. Now, some of you are like, Mephibah who? Mephibah what? Is he making something up, right? Like, you know, no, there's a, there's, a, there's a man in the Old Testament. His name is Mephibosheth. And you say, what's he doing up there, right? This is a, a great story. And many of you may come to church sometimes and you think to yourself, you know what, I'm a little bit insecure. Like, you feel like maybe you don't know Bible stories as well as the person next to you. But understand this. Today, you're pretty much almost all on the same field and the same page because Mephibosheth's story is a very unlikely one. One that's not really taught a whole lot, I think, in church, but one that has an absolutely beautiful, beautiful truth. But before we get there, I want to kind of just by show of hands across the church, you got to participate, okay? How many of you would say, you know what, in life there are many times that unlikely events happen to me? Okay, just show of hands, like crazy unlikely events, right? We could all probably go around the room and begin to share. Uh, every single one of us, right? I've got a theory for, for those of us who have children, for every child you have, the likelihood of something unlikely happening to you increases by at least tenfold for each kid, okay? So I've got two, so that's 20-fold. I'm about to get three, so we're about to go 30, 60, 100-fold, right? I mean, with each kid, you multiply the unlikely activities that happen inside of your household. Uh, it's just That's just the reality of our lives. And so when I think of this story in the Old Testament, the same is true. We're going to encounter an unlikely and beautiful truth from a biblical character named Mephibosheth whose story starts for us in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. If you have a Bible you see in the card in front of you, follow along in your notes any way you like. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. The Bible says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul... That's Mephibosheth's grandfather. And Jonathan, that's Mephibosheth's father, had been killed in battle. Now let's pause just for a second. 
It's very important to understand the power of this story, that we get the context of these characters that, that are in it. So we're going to kind of take a look at your card there in front of you. The first you'll see at the top, you have Saul. This is the King Saul, right? King Saul is obviously the, the, the first king of Israel. When Israel moves out of the judges' time period, that God actually never desired to give Israel a king. He wanted to be king himself over the nation. He then almost kind of surrenders, acquiesces into the nation because they continue to want. And so he wanted a monarchy. He wanted one man to become his extension and his authority and, uh, and hand of governance inside the nation. And so this is King Saul, right? He's the king of Israel. He's the current king, King Saul. His son is Jonathan. It's important to know that because Jonathan becomes the prince. The prince. He becomes the prince of the first king. And then we got our character next, you'll see in your card, Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. And then we're going to have David. We just talked two weeks ago about David, the unlikely gifted one. David. David is in David and Goliath. David is in the one who, just as a teenage boy, would kill bears and lions with his hands when the time and opportunity came for him to be anointed by Samuel the prophet. Years later, after faithfully serving God in the desert and on the backside of the wilderness, he gets his opportunity to literally shine, and he asks for King Saul's permission to kill that nine-foot-nine Philistine from Gath named Goliath, and he kills the giant. And so I want you to kind of use that at the top of your sheet as a reference point as we kind of walk through this story. Now imagine, five years old, you're just simply out playing in the courtyard, having a fun day, doing what royal kids do. They probably could do whatever they wanted to do. They're just hanging out. You're five years old. You're having a good time. You're in kindergarten. The palace doors bust open. And the moment they do, people go into pandemonium. People are screaming. People are hollering. People are yelling. Things are going crazy. You're wondering what is going on. And all you know is you're like, what is happening? And they say to you as a five-year-old, your dad and your granddad just got killed in battle. Your dad, your granddad are gone. They're extinguished. They're eradicated. That's a bad way to start a day for a five-year-old. We just read these stories like we have pious distance. We never enter into them. Think about this. Five years old, you're just playing around, and all of a sudden, here comes this pandemonium. Your dad, your granddad are killed. But it gets worse. They're all in a panic, you see, because David was on his way to the palace to assume power. Now, that would have been a problem in this monarchy because any time in a monarchy the family lines change, what happens to the old family? They become eradicated. Everybody that's a part of the previous monarchy, they're killed off. Why? Because you don't want a potential heir to the throne to be alive when a new family lineage comes into the monarchy. So everybody's freaking out in the palace. They're thinking they're going to get killed, including Mephibosheth. You say, why? Because his dad had been killed. His grandfather had been killed. So who is next in line for the king? It would be he. So since David is already anointed, he knows he's number one to go. He's number one to be killed, right? So Mephibosheth's there. He's five years old. My grandfather, my dad are both dead. And then, well, David's coming into the city. Now understand this context for this five-year-old. David was iconic, y'all. Chronologically speaking, this, what we're reading about in 2 Samuel 4, happened uh, after David had killed Goliath. 
In fact, David had so many escapades as a general for Saul's army that he had gone out and slayed many a Philistine. He was a bad mamma-jamma. In fact, there was a scripture in the Old Testament where all the little girls would get on the side of the street and they would say, oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. They had commercials about him. He was iconic. In our day and age, we could realize that David was plastered across every TV screen. He was on every billboard. But David... And Jonathan, that's Mephibosheth's dad, were really good friends. Therefore, it's almost as if David could have been like a hero to Mephibosheth. In modern day times, he may have even had a poster of David on his wall. And David, because of his relationship with Jonathan, he could have even been like a family friend to Mephibosheth. I mean, he was almost like an honorary uncle. So Mephibosheth is understanding, my dad's dead. My dad's killed in battle. My grandfather's dead. And now David... Well, it's going to be okay because, because David's coming, right? And they're saying, no, he wants to kill you. What? He wants to kill me? What do you mean? I don't understand. This is a lot, y'all, for a kid to take in. It's a lot for anybody to take in. So all of a sudden, they're in this panic, right? When the panic, the nurse reaches down and picks up Mephibosheth and begins to run outside the palace. And as they continue, in verse 4, the Bible says, look at it. And she drops him, and he breaks both legs and becomes crippled. Five years old. They pick him back up. They don't have any doctors or time to put a splint on his legs. They don't have time to do anything. They just run with him out to a place called Lodabar. Lodabar, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So catch this. His dad passes. His grandfather passes. David, who he thought he could trust, is now coming to try to kill him. Both legs get broke, and they just pick you up, and they whisk you away. And his entire world at five years old had been flipped upside down in a minute. Have you ever had a Mephibosheth moment in your life? You're sitting there, everything's fine. You're in the palace, hanging out in the palace. Everything's good. Then all of a sudden, a doctor gives you a report that you never thought you'd get. Everything changes in six or seven words. A Mephibosheth moment. One day you felt healthy. The next day you don't. You feel like everything's been turned on in. Maybe it's someone you thought you could trust. They violated that trust. Maybe it's someone you highly esteemed. They did something very wrong and atrocious to you. Maybe it was a relationship that you thought would go the distance. It was a high school sweetheart. You knew you'd be married with them and married to them for the rest of your life. But now, in a matter of minutes, everything that was in your world begins to crumble down in so short of a time that it just literally puts your whole world on end. And in that emotion, you begin to understand where five-year-old Mephibosheth is. And for him... Years go by and nothing happens. He doesn't get healed. He doesn't get helped. He's just broken. The story of Mephibosheth, a sad one. Because we're talking about unlikely saints. The very next verse says, but one day, I like that, one day, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. One day, I love it, one day, David asks. One day out of the blue, David comes into remembrance something that he made a long time ago. And the Bible says, King David says, is there anyone left in the household of Saul to whom I can show kindness to? For Jonathan's sake. Now, based off of what we know about the killing off of a monarchy, that's a weird statement, right? Can we just be honest? It's kind of interesting. Unless you understand the context. 
You see, as we talked about, Jonathan and David were best friends. The Bible says that they were literally intertwined. They became one in spirit, the scripture said. Souls become intertwined, the mingling of two souls. In fact, David would write in the Psalms that he said, you know what, Jonathan's love for me is better than the love of all my wives. Now that violates all broco laws. A broco laws, you don't ever say that, especially on social media, but nonetheless, this is what he wrote down in the Bible. Okay, and so David and Jonathan were close, right? Very, very good friends. At one point in scripture, what had happened was David had been anointed by the Old Testament prophet Samuel. Jonathan was aware of this. Jonathan knew when Saul left the throne, he would become the king, but he now knew I can't become the king because the prophet Samuel came and anointed my best friend. The anointing was that David would become the king of Israel. Jonathan believed it. Isn't it amazing how much humility he had as a leader? He believed it. Therefore, he talked to David and he went to his brother, his friend, and he said, listen, when you become king, David, I want you, would you show kindness to me and my family? Would you just please show kindness? Listen, when you become king, just just be nice to me because remember, it wouldn't be a good thing for Jonathan if the royal line changed. So he said, would you show kindness, David, to me and my family? And David says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will show kindness to you and your family. Now, he had made this promise. David did so many years ago. This covenant with Jonathan that he would do this. And the Bible records in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that one day, now I don't know why, church, but I got some, I, got, I, I could probably preach on this one verse about the next hour, but I can't today. I don't know how it happened, but I just know this. When you make a covenant and God sees and marks the covenant, there comes a time that somehow, some way, you'll begin to allow the Holy Spirit to raise up in the mind and the heart of the person who made the covenant that it's time to come through on your promise. It's time to bring restitution. I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was the month that Jonathan had died, but something pricked David's heart, even in the midst of a palace. And he remembered back to when he was on the backside of a desert. He remembered back when he wasn't important enough to be brought into the house the day the prophet Samuel comes. And David, as a king, doesn't wear his hat on top of his head. He doesn't lift up in this high, lofty position. Perhaps it's the same time of year when David lost Jonathan. Maybe it's out they were out doing something that he and Jonathan used to love to do together. But whatever mine... And whatever reason, God brings it to the mind of David. This promise, this covenant, his love for his dear friend whom he's lost. And he said, is there anyone left whom I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? Anybody left? So they summoned this guy named Ziba. Ziba's an interesting character in Scripture. Ziba was one of Saul's servants. Of course, Saul is dead. And they asked him this question, and Ziba replies to King David. And he says, uh, well, yeah, there is... Um, there is one of Jonathan's sons, but he's crippled in both feet. And so this Ziba just kind of pushes him aside. He says, well, you, you don't really want him. Sound familiar? Come on, anybody remember two weeks ago? You, you remember what Jesse did when David was out in the desert? Oh, you don't really want to bring him. Do You got another son? Well, no, he's just kind of the runt of the bunch. He's out. You, you really don't want him to, to track sheep dung in the carpet, you know. We, we don't really want to bring him in. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Because you see, in this day and age, and in this culture at this time, to be broken in your legs, do you understand there's no ADA compliances? Do you understand? There's no handicap ramps. There's no wheelchairs. There's, no, there's nothing for him. So the society in which Mephibosheth lived, in many ways, they pushed him aside and considered him like a burden. They looked at this young man like worthless. He was worthless. He was not meant or fit to be anywhere around a king. Now, in our point today, let me just make a quick point here. We understand this to be absolutely absurd. That's quite ridiculous because we know that any physical limitation placed upon you has no absolute, no barrier 
bearing on God's ability to work through you. Let me go a little bit step further and say, in fact, many times what Jesus Christ will do, he'll work through somebody who's got physical ailment in a greater way. He'll work through somebody who's got physical ailments and difficulties and speech patterns and stuttering in a greater sense because he gets glory. So we understand it to be absurd. But in the context of this story, it's important to note how quickly Zeba just brushes him aside. He says, yeah, but you know, there's one, but you don't want to mess with him, which is what they did with David in his first anointing. But this is not the response that David gives, though. I just believe that God reused David and his anointing so that he could then in turn, oh, you're going you're gonna to follow me today, in turn do the same thing, and it reverberates to the rest of the relationships in his life. And David says, well, I know you may not think he's good, but I want to ask you where he is. I want this kid. And Zeba replies, well, he's out in Lodabar. At the house of Machir is where he is. And David says, well, go get him right now. Can I tell you, Lodabar was a place that meant a place of no bread. It's the opposite of Bethel. Lodabar. It's considered an arid, dry, desolate place. A place way out. You, wouldn't, you would almost say that Mephibosheth had been placed in the witness protection program, right? It would be biblical almost to say that because they wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. He was a part of the family lineage. They pick him up, take him out to a place, a distant place, a place of no bread. In fact, we don't have time to turn there, but in 1 Chronicles chapter 8, it's important to note. Can I just say something real quick? It's important to note in 1 Chronicles 8, in the genealogy of King Saul, Mephibosheth was not even Jonathan's son's name. It wasn't Mephibosheth. You know what his name was? Meribal, M-E-R-I-B-A-A-L. Sounds like Baal. You know what it meant? It meant opponent of Baal. It meant was an old, Baal was an Old Testament father. God, Old, Old Testament God that all the Canaanites worship, and Jonathan and, and King Saul said, we're going to have a child, and we're going to have a grandson, and we're going to name him Meribah. He's going to be against the, the foreign gods. He's going to be for God. He's going to know the Lord our God is one. It was almost like they were saying, hey, Mephibosheth, you are of royal lineage. Oh, you have no idea, parents, how powerful your words are to bring prophetic direction to your children. And yet, even in the midst of them bringing forth this son, you are Meribah. That's your name. You're my son, Meribah. But his name got changed in the context of his physical ailment to Mephibosheth, which means son of shame or shameful thing. <laughs> See, the greatest temptation you and I live today, the greatest temptation we face is to live out of an image that we've created or received rather than an identity we receive from Jesus Christ. And what we do is we spend most of the years of our life living an identity we want to make up or identity people have placed on us rather than the identity we receive from God himself. So you could imagine five years old, you lose your father, you lose your grandfather, your legs become broken. Those who you thought you could trust, you can't trust. You're taken away from a palace. You're left in a place called Lodabar. Your name is changed from opponent of Baal to Meribah or a Meribah to Mephibosheth, son of shame. Sound like an unlikely saint to me. <laughs> Sounds like now he's ready to be used, isn't it? So Mephibosheth has lived many, many years in Lodabar. We don't know how many years. The Bible's not clear on this. We do know that he's now grown at this point. He's not a little kid anymore. He's grown. He's out there, and Zeba comes to the door and knocks. Hey, it's Zeba. I'm here from the palace, Mephibosheth. King David wants to see you. Now, from, from Mephibosheth, is this a good day? Is it like, woo Well, sweet. I've been waiting for this all my life. No! All of the incarnation of the fear and the worry and the terror that had haunted him for years is coming to his door. He thinks he's about to be killed. (laughs) 
He's already made up his mind how King David feels about him. You know he grew up hating David because it's David's fault that I'm out here in this desolate place. It's David's fault that I'm a fugitive. It's, it's David's fault that my legs are broke. It's David's fault and now he wants me dead. I know it's been coming. They've been telling me it's coming for years and now the time is here. It had to be what he had felt. He's now a grown man. But this, my friends, is where the story takes an unlikely twist. This is where it takes an unlikely turn. We see David's response to be quite different than what Mephibosheth had thought. We're going to pick up in verse 7, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Notice what the Bible says. He says to him, don't be afraid, David said. He's now in the presence of David. Because Mephibosheth had been brought before him and he says, verse 7, Don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all. Everybody say all. I will give you all of the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you'll eat with me here at the king's table. Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? That, my friends, is the verse that personifies the majority of the culture that you and I minister to every day. Who is your servant? You're going to show kindness to a dead dog? What a terrible thing to say about yourself. I'm a dead dog. But when we almost see why right here in the next verse, it says, notice it, all these years of hiding, man, this is so powerful, had made Mephibosheth think of himself as worthless. Did you just hear what I said? I didn't, I, I didn't make that up. That's right in the scripture. All of these years of hiding made Mephibosheth think of himself as worthless. Today, some of you are coming out of hiding. It's in isolation. It's in obscure places. It's in a place where you feel worthless that God is going to call you out of. A place where you've been hiding for so long. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you kind of felt like you'd become worthless or maybe you weren't worthy of something or maybe you felt inadequate for the task that God pre uh, prepared before you or maybe you've been living in guilt for so long where I'm wrong at all that I do when you don't deal with that guilt after a long period of time when you don't allow the free gift of righteousness to replace the guilt then what begins to happen is it turns into shame and shame is not guilt. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong. I'm a dead dog. I'm worthless. I'm never able to amount to anything. And so many people live in that place of shame. You see, for Mephibosheth, in this moment, as he's receiving this blessing from King David, everything that he had believed, everything that he had known, everything that he had internalized about David had been completely wrong. He had to be confused, trying to figure out what's going on. He had to be bowing. He had to be waiting, knowing, coming to the palace, just waiting on the sword to come across his neck. But it didn't happen. Everything that he had thought, about the king, everything that he thought was about to happen, everything that he thought David stood for, everything that he knew David wanted to do was absolutely wrong. And in the same way, most of our culture, many of us find ourselves pushing ourselves spiritually out to a place like Lodabar, and we think God is one way. We think God has one heart. We think God has one mind towards us. We think God believes one thing about us. We think, oh, he's mad at me because, well, I haven't done anything he's asked me to do. I, I, I'm in a desolate place. I've not been doing what he's asked me to do oh or you know what he's mad at me and I know God's upset with me and he's just waiting to drop a hammer on my head he's just waiting and I know now is the time it's coming or maybe you're in this room and you've carried that guilt for years and something that wasn't even your fault something that was done to you and now you're so wrapped up in shame but for some reason you carry this guilt and you think God's upset with you and you think God's angry at you in some way 
And what I'm here to tell you this morning is it is absolutely wrong. That is completely wrong. Whatever you think you've internalized about how God feels about your mistakes is absolutely wrong. You see, in the same way that David had an unlikely and different outcome from Mephibosheth, God's desire for you is to bless you, to bring you a hope and a future. It's not to destroy you. It's not to cut your head off. It's to bring you back to the king's table. It's to bring you to a place where you receive something you never should have received. It's a place to pour out his love, his mercy, and grace on you like never. It's a sudden twist all of a sudden for Mephibosheth. (laughs) Everything changes. Now, it's important to know that at this point, David says to Ziba, Ziba, come here. I'm going to give Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, all of his land. Woo! I'm going to give King all of King Saul's land. I'm giving it all to Mephibosheth. I'm not talking about a little garden over here to the corner. He gives him everything that belonged to the first king of Israel. Every bit of the property. He gets a vast amount of property. Then David says to Ziba, Oh, you and your household? Ziba, you're a servant of me now. But here's what you're going to do. All 35 of you who you've looked down upon him and your servants, you're going to actually serve Mephibosheth for the rest of his life. And you're going you're to wait on every need he has. And you're going to come back and serve his life. And you're going to serve whatever he desires. And so they all begin to serve Mephibosheth. And then I love this in verse 11. Man, I hope you're with me this this morning. I feel like you're with me even though you're not talking to me. The Bible says in verse 11, and Mephibosheth ate regularly at the king's table like one of the king's own sons. How about that? A kid from five years old having all this stuff happen to him, all these terrible things, all these years, and suddenly gets flipped on in. And I like this beautiful story of redemption, this beautiful story of restoration, and David brings him to a place of honor and power. Now, folks, we love the ending of this story. We love it when we see somebody who really didn't deserve that and has gotten dealt a hard hand and deal in life. All of a sudden, they end up being restored and almost like vindicated. We are like, yes. We just want to stand up and shout, yeah. We're fired up. Why? We love seeing things like when somebody who never got that chance, but yet they had a great voice. They jump up on a stage one day in Hollywood. They sing in front of a few judges. Uh, They get a couple chair turns. Somebody turns around on the red chair. They turn around. They stand up and say, I want you on my team. And the next thing you know, they're the next pop icon of America. We we, we step back and we high-five each other in our living rooms. We're like, whoa, did you see them? They were so good. And all of us love this, right? We cheer them on because we love as humans to see the underdog. Or like maybe when tragedy strikes. And you see a family lose a father in war. And all of a sudden the mom's doing everything she can to keep things together. She's working three jobs. And the house starts to fall down around them. It's in disrepair. They don't have the money to fix it. And these people swoop in. They take a broken down shanty. And they turn it into a palace in seven days. And they get out there in the road. And they stand in the street. And they say, move that bus. And we're in our living room. People crying in the street. We're crying in our living room. And we're all crying on the couch. Why? Because we love these stories of mercy. Mercy and redemption, we love it. Why? Because these type of stories, the story of Mephibosheth, the story of a five-year-old who had a terrible beginning yet ends up with this beautiful ending, that type of story is etched in the very DNA of our souls. It's the very gospel you and I were made for. We are moved in the deepest parts of uh, what it means to be a humanity when we begin to see stories where someone deserved death, someone deserved wrath, someone deserved punishment, and yet God brings about restoration. God brings about reconciliation. We love it. You see the story of of Mephibosheth, the story of the Old Testament is an allegory, friends, of what Christ has done for you and what he's done for me. What do you mean I'm Mephibosheth? Yeah, you're Mephibosheth and I'm Mephibosheth. And I want to 
fire through this. How are you Mephibosheth three ways? We're Mephibosheth. They're right there on your card in front of you. First, we are fallen and broken. Oh, perhaps you're not fallen and broken physically. But every single one of us are fallen and broken spiritually. You see, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In the same way that Mephibosheth had fallen and was broken, we too are fallen and we are broken. Oh yeah, we may not use needles, but when we laid our head on our pillow at night and we let cable TV wash over our lives, deep down inside we feel empty. And deep down inside we feel such guilt. Because we know that there are things that are lurking in our hearts that have remained in darkness. Second. But the great thing about this story is Mephibosheth wasn't just left there. Number two, we are are pursued by the king. We are pursued by the king. Just as Mephibosheth was pursued by King David, we are pursued by the king. But he ain't a king on earth, friends. He ain't a king that's over a little bitty kingdom. He ain't a king that, that, that has literally been created with human hands. No, no, He's not a king that will grant us land. He's not a king that will give us some wealth. He's not a king that will give us material possessions. We are pursued by the king of kings. And we are pursued by the Lord of lords. We are pursued by Jesus Christ. The gospel and Ziba and Mephibosheth didn't start with Mephibosheth going and seeking out King David. No. No, 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 that's not the gospel, my friend. You didn't start your journey to Jesus by you pursuing after the king. No, you were out in Lodabar in a place where you felt forgotten, a place where you would have died and gone to hell. You were in a place, and I was in a place where we had no hope. We were without hope. We were without uh, any desire for Jesus Christ at all. And yet somehow God in his covenant remembered what he had made with his humanity through Jesus Christ. And he made good on his covenant, and he pursued after you, and he pursued after me. That's why John chapter 3, verse 7, says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world oh no 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 he had something really really unlikely he didn't send him to condemn the world as the world may think no he sent him in the world that he might save the world through him an unlikely twist to the story and the same truth is true for us that you know as Mephibosheth was pursued by King David we have been pursued by the king of kings so we're fallen and broken we're pursued by the king and then thirdly The king's table covers our sins. The king's table covers our sins. Now perhaps if you are kind of like my family, when Thanksgiving comes around in a few weeks, or Christmas, what you do is you get at a family table, right? And what happens is you sit down at a table similar to this. There's usually people surrounding all around you. And for those of us who live in the Western world, we love to eat, right, at Thanksgiving. I mean, it's like the most Thanksgiving holiday on the planet. I, we, I eat three times the amount on Thanksgiving that I do even on Christmas, right? I mean, and if you have families like us, you have to eat at 10 a.m., then you got to eat at 12, and then you got to eat at 2, and then you got to eat at 4, and then you eat at 6, right? And you're just surrounded by people. And we sit at a table with friends and family. And when Mephibosheth, verse 11, the Bible says he ate regularly at the table, the king's table like one of the king's own sons. And when he sat at the table, friends, it's important for us to know that when he sat there, look at me, his crippled, broken condition in his legs was covered by the king's table. (laughs) Woo! Nobody in the king's palace could see his crippledness. Nobody could see what, what what had haunted him for years. Nobody could see what was the enemy of his past. 
He was sitting at the table just like one of the king's own sons. And everything that had haunted him for years was completely covered. They saw someone who was of power. They saw someone who has been granted access into the king's very table. They saw someone who sat like one of who was of, of the own king's son. And in the same way, friends, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed on the cross for you and his blood that was shed on the cross for me and for our spiritually broken condition, we are made whole and complete in the king's table. We're invited to the king's table because the sacrifice of Jesus not just covers our sins. Behold, John said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes your sin and casts it as far as the east is from the west, and he no longer remembers it. He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't hold it against you. He just has grace and mercy for you. And the Bible says, underneath the power of Jesus' blood and sacrifice for sin, that we are made like one of the king's sons too. To you in this room, you think you're forgotten and unaccepted. But really, you're chosen and invited. <laughs> and when you sit at the king's table, no one around you will ever see your crippleness again. The blood of Jesus covers it. This is the story of Mephibosheth. A man in Lodabar. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom. <laughs> Verse 13, 2 Samuel chapter 9, look what it says. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. We, knowing that we are Mephibosheth, here's what I want you to do. Just insert your name on that blank. We or I, Craig, who was broken, now regularly eats at the king's table. I, Rachel, who was broken, now regularly eats at the king's table. I, Bobby, who was broken, disgusted, and in Lodabar, in a place of no bread, am sitting at the very king of kings' table, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Because you see, you were fallen and broken, I was fallen and broken, but we're pursued by the king. And the king's table, oh, it covers our sins. And even though we may think we're broken and useless, oh, no, 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 God says that we are chosen and invited. And that, my friends, is something to be thankful for. That, my friends, is something to celebrate and give God all the praise we could ever give him. We are indeed broken and useless, but then pursued by the king and his table covers our sins. Now, once we understand that, I now got to spend the rest of this message turning it. And God wants you now to do what Jesus did to you, to the people around you. Jesus, an interesting story, one of my favorite ones. Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is talking about the two greatest commandments, what I want to do for the next few moments is talk about the implications of those two important relationships in your life. The two most important relationships come from the two greatest commandments. You probably know one of the passages of scriptures is Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is being confronted by some religious leaders, and they're trying to trap him with their question. It's a heads up for you and me, right? It's not a great idea to trap the creator of the universe with any of our questions, okay? That's a bad idea, all right? Just, just take some advice. Because he understands our thoughts, he understands the motives of our hearts. You don't even, you don't even have to talk to Jesus to know what, for him to know what you're thinking of, right? Or for him to respond to you. The questions always gave Jesus an opportunity to say what he wanted to say. So these questions did the same thing. Look what happens in Matthew 22. I want to read the text for us. It's a passage that if you've been around church in your life, you're going to know this text. It's not 
It's gonna be exciting for you to hear the first time. This is what happens in Matthew chapter 22, beginning verse 34. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That's one segment of the religious leaders. The Pharisees got together. You would think if he's already quieted one group, you'd say, well, let's don't mess with this guy. But the Pharisees weren't like that. They thought they could corner him. So they go up to corner Jesus. What were they trying to do? They were trying to prove that Jesus, okay, Jesus was less than who he claimed to be. They got together, and one of them, the expert in the law, the Bible says, tested Jesus with this question. They said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, for us in the room, if you're thinking 10 commandments, you don't need to think 10 commandments anymore. That's not what he's talking about here. You know why? Because by the time Jesus had arrived on earth, there were hundreds of other addendums to the original 10 commandments. There's hundreds, if not thousands of addendums. So there were a lot of things you had to do the right way, the right time, say the right way, show up at the right time to be in right standing with God. So this lawyer thought, man, I can probably get Jesus on one of these. I can zero in on this guy's motive if we can ask him the greatest of all the commandments. It's not out of 10, it's probably out of hundreds. I love Jesus because he didn't turn to his consultant. He didn't say, well, yeah, give me some more time and I'll come back to you. I need to make a phone call, phone a friend. No, no, no. Just like that, he responds to the questioning of this group of people and this one man in particular, look what he says. He replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't you love how all the hostility that gets diffused in an instant (laughs) just an instant by that statement you're trying to pin me against the wall to know whether or not I'm from God well here's my answer to your question you want to know the greatest commandment love God with your whole heart do you know why that answer my friends is so cutting it's because that answer immediately resonates into the tone and tenor of what was woven into our hearts at the moment of creation That's why it cuts. You say, what do you mean? When God knit us together in our mother's womb, he knit us together to be in relationship with himself. Inside every human being is a violin string set, if you will, that was created for the bow of almighty God. And he wants to constantly play it. That's how he created you. And so what happens is, then when we hear questions like that, it's in the harmony of those bow and strings that something in our heart happens. It doesn't happen anywhere else on planet Earth. When he said, here's the great commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, immediately something inside of them was going, "Uh uh-oh, I think I know where he's going with this, and I don't even know really what he's gonna say. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Now he's assuming there's more to us than just what meets the eye. There's something else going on inside of you and me. He said, love the Lord God with all your mind. And I love that real quick, just a small footnote here. I love that because people look at Christians today and they say, you're just out on a limb of faith. You don't even think about anything anymore. You just believe everything. No, 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 no. God is the God of all creation. You know what that means? That means he's the scientist of all scientists. He's the mathematician of all mathematicians. That means he's the Einstein of all Einsteins. And he don't want you to have blind faith. He wants you to think about your faith. He wants you to use your mind in your faith. He wants you to engage your mind in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. God doesn't want want just just blind faith. He wants discipleship. And then he takes a breath and he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Now there are two things, disciples or or, or Pharisees, that are coming to your one thing question. There are two answers coming. Doesn't God do that to you a lot? God, I just want to know one thing. And he says, no, I'm going to give you eight things. God, I just want to know if it's that girl. No, you don't need to know that girl. You need to know this girl, this girl, this girl. God, I just need to know if you'll give me that. He's like, no, you don't need that one thing. You need these eight things, right? God always gives us two answers to the one thing question. This is how God always does. And God responds and says, I know you want one thing, but I'm gonna give you two things. The first is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but the second is like it. The second is very similar. In other words, God knows what we need. He knew it wasn't one answer they needed to their question. It was two answers. If you wanna know the most important thing, he's saying that you love God with your heart, soul, and mind. Until that happens, we can't go to number two, but, but yet he goes to the second one and he says, 
The second one's like it, to love your neighbor. How does it go? As yourself. And he drops a bomb on their question. He says all of the law. You know what that means? Everything that's been added to the Ten Commandments, everything that put man put into the equation. He says all of God's law and all of the prophets, they hang on these two commandments. What does that mean? All the messages that have been foretold for centuries and centuries about what I'm, uh, I'm doing, what God's plan is for your life, all of the law, all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, everything God has ever thought about doing that God is doing and God that ever will do hinges on these two thoughts, these two things, that you and I understand the two greatest commandments in life, the two things we must understand about life is that God loves us and he now asks us to love him back and to love our neighbor of ourselves. Why? Because these two commandments inform our two greatest relationships. And do you know what your number one relationship, primary relationship outside of your primary relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important relationship? You say, it's my wife. Eh. It's my kids. Eh. The most important relationship outside of your primary relationship with God is the relationship with yourself. Because you spend more time with you than anybody else on the planet. You listen to you more than you listen to anybody else on the planet. How's that working for you? You talk to yourself the most. Listen, whatever you believe about you is mostly what you told yourself to believe about you. However you good you think you are is mostly predicated on how good you told yourself that you could do. How worthy you feel about life and your life is most predicated on how worthy you told yourself you should feel about life. Obviously, our relationship with God is primary, but second to that, our most important relationship is the relationship we have with ourselves. And some of you are wondering, does God really know where I'm at? Yes, he knows where you're at. He identifies where you're at because he came to planet Earth. He lived like you and I lived. He lived as the great high priest making intercession and he can be touched by the infirmity of our weakness. Why? Because he knows what it's like to be tempted. The scriptures say he was tempted in every way just like you and me and was without sin. He knows what it's like to be frustrated. He knows what it's like to lose it. You remember when he overturned the tables? He got angry in the temple. He knows what it's like to get angry one day, mama, when you're taking care of the kids. Mayor, that's for you, baby, right there. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be reviled. He knows what it's like to have things against the wall. He knows what it's like to come to the point of suffering alone. Jesus didn't just come for an hour or a day or a couple of weeks. He came to spend 33 years on this planet. And what he did with doing that is he said to you and I, I want you to make the number one priority of your life falling in love with me. And we would know right away that you, God, understand me. You know what it's like to walk in my shoes. And I don't know, most of you, maybe you've never been down this road, but I was talking to this guy recently. He's on this thing called, well, I don't want to mention it, but this thing, this online dating scene, which is awesome because we've had multiple couples, even our own church that have matched up and it's really worked but but I, I talked to him and I said he's on this website where he's going to find this wife and I said well how does it work and uh, he was explaining it not because I'm looking for a wife right now I really didn't ask you for that but uh, he was explaining it to to me how it happened and here's what he said he said uh, first and foremost I put these things in my deal and then I get these profiles in my account and then I go through these profiles and I said how long does that take and he's like a really a long time and I said oh man um, um, really and he said yeah I do it at work and he said when I get off work uh, which please don't do that, okay? He said, when I get off work, then I get home and I do it again. And he said, when I get in my bed, I open it again. And then I'm on, on the computer looking at it and then I close it down and then I go jump in the bed and I pick my phone up and I look at it again. I turn, he, and I said, really? Yeah, he said, I'm constantly looking through my profile to see if they've added profile people to her. And he said, I really don't look first and foremost at her picture. I'm kind of looking at her heart and character. I'm like, yeah, sure you are, right? You know, like yeah, that's what you're immediately looking. You, you never touch her picture. You just read her profile. You never, you just, you just don't worry about the picture whatsoever. And, and, and he said, you know, I'm just looking at her heart. 
Who's she? Who she is? And I said, you know what? At the end of the day, he's looking for somebody who gets him. That's what we all want. And Jesus gets you. He gets everything about you. All of us want a significant relationship to be with somebody that gets us. When you say something you think is funny, you want them to think it's funny. If you say something that's brilliant and tweet-worthy, you don't want them to say, oh, what'd you say? Okay, that dating relationship lasts about a week. You want them to get it, get the tweet, and start just following you, following you around with a microphone, right? You want somebody to get you. If you read science books, you want them to at least like science books. If you like deer hunting, you want them to at least give you a few days away to go deer hunting. And Jesus is saying, I know what you want and I know what you need and I understand you. I understand you. How does God relate to you and I? This is mind-boggling to me. The way he relates to us is a couple of things. Number one, he relentlessly pursues us even though we don't pursue him. Number two, he doesn't give us what he deserve, we deserve. But number three, he meets us the whole way. He never meets us halfway, church. He meets us all the way. You do good in our day to meet somebody who'll meet you halfway. You find somebody who'll meet you halfway for lunch, that's a really good day. That's a good lunch. Between me and you is a long distance. Let's just meet halfway. You get into a conflict with somebody and they meet you halfway, you're really, really happy about it. You get into a lawsuit and find somebody meets you halfway, you're rejoicing. But let me tell you something. God doesn't meet us halfway. He meets us the whole way. He didn't come halfway to earth and get halfway up in the stratosphere and say, okay, now I came half the way. Would you come up and meet me? No, he came all the way. He came to Bethlehem. He took on flesh. He came to us. He met us right where we are. He literally took on sinful humanity to identify with us as humans what it means to be in solidarity with the way we feel. He found the prodigal son, and he didn't meet him halfway. He's looking out over the, 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 the bows. He's looking at the deck every day, and the moment he sees him, he lifts up his tunic, and he runs after him. The illustration is that God meets us the full way. And then the Bible says he doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. I saw this illustration. It's not original to me, but I wanted to share it with you. It so impacted me, I thought, i got to share this with the church. Sometime back. What is it that God today, when you look in the mirror, says about you? Because the reality is none of us are going to an important meeting without looking in this mirror. None of us came to church this morning without looking in this mirror. We don't wake up and go to work in the morning without looking in this mirror. And there's some things that when you look at the mirror that are absolutely true about you. And God, when he looks at the mirror, he says this is true about you. Number one, here's what God says. Without a doubt. God says, I love you. I've always loved you. I love you today. I'll always continue to love you. In fact, I know what it means to pursue after you. You're loved. You're completely loved. He says, I want you to know a couple of things. I want to know I just love you. I, I'm really passionate for you. I want you to know not only just so I love you, but you know what? I want you to know and you need to understand that I'm grateful for you. You say, Craig, why do you say that? Because some of us, we think God loves generally all humanity, but that's not the case. God actually loves that he created you. He's not sorry he made you. He's very grateful. In fact, he looks at your day and says, man, I'm really, really grateful you're alive. I'm really, really grateful you're on the planet. I'm really, really grateful that you're living for me. You're doing what I'm asking you to do. I'm just grateful for you. He's not just saying, oh, I'm just kind of peacefully coexisting with you. 
you. No, God looks at you in the mirror when you look at yourself in the mirror and he says, I'm really grateful for you. I'm actually grateful for you. Don't we all want somebody to just feel grateful for us? Just feel grateful or appreciate something about us for crying out loud? Well, Jesus in heaven today says, I'm grateful for you. But you know what on that? He goes on and he says, you know what? You know what, Craig? You're a rare and you're a beautiful treasure. That's who you are. You're beautifully made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You're rare and beautiful. You're a treasure. I love you so much. I gave my life for you. You're rare. You're rare because there's no one else like you. You have a fingerprint like nobody else on the planet. You're beautiful because you have God woven into you, and God is awesome. God is amazing. You're rare and beautiful. That's what he says to us. And then he says to you in the mirror, I want you to know that I forgive you. I forgive you past, present, and future. I completely forgive you. I forgive you all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins, all of your sins atoned for, forgiven, set free, washed away, canceled out. God says, I forgive you in Jesus Christ. Now, now I'm not just not going to forgive you and not hold you to a higher standard, so I am going to hold you to a standard. That means you can't just go live and presume on my grace, but when you fall, I'm not going to kick you off the bus. When you fall, I'm not going to kick you off the team. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start showing you grace and mercy in appropriate ways. Why? Because every morning in your life, the grace and mercy will be yours again. I'm not going to allow you. You're on your seventh marriage. Oh, just get up into double digits. Get 10, 11. No, God doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. I, I, I will show you grace and mercy in appropriate ways, but I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. Why? Because you represent me on the earth. But not only that, the Bible says after that, he's not expecting us to be perfect. He will give us strength. But then he says, you know what? I have a special calling for your life. Did you know that? There's a calling for your life, Craig. There's a calling for your life, David. It's a special calling. I created you in Christ Jesus to do good works before the foundation of the world. I've got a calling for you. You know what that means? Nobody's going into a cubicle tomorrow. Nobody's just going to work tomorrow. He's got a divine appointment for you every moment of every day. God has a purpose. He has a special calling for your life. And you know what? I want you to know, Craig, that I'm actually cheering for you. I'm not just uh, just okay with you living. I'm actually cheering for you. When you walk outside the door every day, I stand up in heaven and I'm cheering. I'm behind you. In fact, there's a host of heaven, the Bible says in Romans 12, that literally is, or Hebrews 12, that is, is, is making testimony to your life, that they are becoming witnesses to your life. And so when you say, you know what? What does God say about me? When you get in front of the mirror tomorrow morning, heaven looks at you and says, you're loved. You're loved. Heaven looks at you and says, man, we're so grateful that you're alive. I'm so grateful for your life. Man, you're a rare and beautiful treasure, Craig. I, I've created you in my very image. No one like you. I've forgiven you past, present, future. I've given, forgiven all your sins in Jesus Christ. But I'm gonna hold you to a higher standard. I'm always gonna give you grace and mercy, Craig, when you fail. Hey, I got a special calling for you, Craig. Did you know I woke you up this morning, put breath in your body so that you could do what I asked you to do? You're created in Christ Jesus to do good works before the foundation of the world. And you know what? I cheer for you. Nobody cares about me. My life's not significant. Nobody know if I'm not here. Wrong. Heaven is glad that you're here. Heaven is thankful that you're here. Heaven is cheering for you every single morning when you wake up. He is grateful. God is grateful that you're here. You say, Craig, why does that matter? Because, listen, when you and I come to real terms to really believe these truths, we don't know that we really believe them just because we know them mentally. Because I know I can wake up morning, every morning, David, and I can look in the mirror and say, oh, I'm loved, I'm rare. Oh, yeah, I love that, God. Woo! But how I know do I really believe that or not? 
Is that reflected in the way I treat others? So I saw this illustration that I just thought was so powerful. Did you know that every day you wake up, God is a shoveler God? Our God's a shoveler God. What do you mean, Greg? Yeah, he's a shoveler God. Think about this. Every morning you wake up, here's what God, God's saying. Hey, heaven, I just, heaven just wants to know you to know that I love you today. I love you today. You need it? Yeah, you need some love? You need some grace? Okay, huh. You need three? Okay, four? That's good, that's good. You got, a, you got a big interview today? Yeah, I'll give you some extra grace this way. You need forgiveness? Oh, yeah, all of your sins, all of the past sins, all of the present sins, all of the forgiveness, future sins forgiven in my blood. Oh, you need some more compassion? Okay, I'll give you some compassion. It's been a tough week for you? Oh, your kids are driving you crazy? I'll give you some extra strength, and God just begins to shovel. Hey, you need forgiveness? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got some of that more forgiveness. Oh, you, you mess up again that's okay i'll forgive you 70 times okay here here you need some more all oh, your uh, uh, oh, oh you, you need some more you need some yep i died six hours hanging on a cross for you yep six hours for you hanging between heaven and hell it's literally having my father's back turn on me so i could not turn my back on you oh you need righteous for the unrighteous okay i'll die on a cross you need the just for the unjust okay i'll do that too and god constantly with a shovel every morning he we wake up he just shovels grace he shovels patience he shovels pay a uh, forgiveness he shovels love. He shovels cleansing. He shovels acceptance. He is a shoveling God. And we come to church and we sing, we're like, thank you, Lord. Your love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. We sing that with all of our hearts. But do you know how you know that's true about you? Is when you start pouring out shovel loads on other people. Because what I've learned is that we celebrate the shovel, but we are a whole lot better at dispensing the spoon. We come to church and, oh, you and my connect group, you messed up again? Hmm. We'll see about that. Oh, you failed again, didn't you? Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a little bit of compassion. I'll give you some compassion. And I, I do that only because I'm a Jesus guy. You know, you just be to be thankful I'm forgiven too. You know, I just give you, a, I'm, a, I'm just a Jesus guy. You know, I'm just a compassionate guy. I just, oh, you did it again. You need to be forgiven? Let me pray about that and talk to my pastor first. We're going to, I'm going to fast for 35 weeks and see if you need to be forgiven, Okay. You need to be forgiven. You've, you've done it too many times. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus said to forgive you, so there you go. Isn't it amazing that we celebrate the shovel, but we dispense with the spoon? And when I don't give somebody the acceptance that I've received, it's not because they're not worth the acceptance. It's because I myself don't feel like I've gotten a shovel load of acceptance to be able to share acceptance with other people. You only know you believe these truths when you live those truths in relationship to everybody around you. And until it starts reflecting and infecting every relationship around you, you really don't believe these truths. And so when I know that I know that I know I believe it, I wake up every morning and say, 
Oh, you need more forgiveness? <laughs> I got more forgiveness because the source ain't me. You need grace? Oh, yeah, I've been forgiven 70 times. Seven. I'll give you some more grace. And we begin to shovel out the way we have received the shovel. Mephibosheth, the unlikely loved one. And he does this, friends, not just so your life can be changed, so that everybody's life around you can be changed. Again, thanks so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.